Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. At the start of the Civil War, one clear military advantage that the South held was a superior cavalry force in both the Eastern and Western theaters, led by men like Jeb Stuart and Nathan Bedford Forrest. Why was the Union cavalry unable to match its opponents for several years? What finally brought it into its own? And how significant was cavalry in the Civil War? We'll talk about these questions, about men like Phil Sheridan, George Armstrong, Custer, and other Union cavalrymen, with historian Eric Wittenberg, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich in my office at East Carolina University, but not speaking for the university or with the university, even aware that I'm here on a quiet summer Friday afternoon when the office is otherwise empty. My guest today is Eric Wittenberg, a lawyer and historian from Columbus, Ohio. Eric, welcome to the show. Hi, Jerry. Although I'm I'm not in Columbus, I'm actually at a truck stop in Pennsylvania. I'm traveling today. Ah, very good. Well, I appreciate you making the effort to be here with us. Um, Eric, normally we don't uh, specify what time of year it is because people want to listen on uh, uh, archives and they might hear this report uh, many weeks or months from the time we're recording it. But I make an exception for that today. Uh, it is June of 2005, and as you and I discussed earlier this week, the Civil War uh, community lost uh, one of its important members this week. I wonder if you could uh, tell us about this. Sure. Um, it, it's quite unfortunate, but Brian Pohanka, who is well known to those of us in the Civil War history community, lost a five-year-long battle with cancer two days ago. Um, it took Brian's life on Wednesday morning. For those who are familiar with Brian's work, you know of his 
the many books and articles that he wrote and his historical consulting work with movies that included the Gettysburg film and also uh, Cold Mountain, among others. Uh, and Brian was one of the founders of the Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites, which later got merged, in, merged into the Civil War Preservation Trust. Um, Brian was a giant in this community. He was very much a mentor to me, and his is a loss that is going to be deeply felt by everyone who is an admirer of the Civil War, and uh, by me in particular. Well, I, I don't know if any formal arrangements have been made, but I can't imagine any better memorial that uh, listeners could offer than to contribute to the Civil War Preservation Trust. Well, and in fact, I, I got an email from Brian's wife Cricket last night, and in the email, Cricket specifically asked that in lieu of people sending flowers that they should, it was her preference and Brian's preference that if people want to do something to remember him, to, to do just that, to please send a contribution to the uh, CWPT in Brian's name and in Brian's honor. And it was her opinion that that would do the greatest honor to Brian that could be done. Well, I, I hope uh, I hope our listeners will take advantage of that opportunity to show uh, respect for this this is member of our historical community and uh, to contribute to a cause that is significant to all of us. So I certainly hope uh, we can all do something there. Well, Eric, let me turn to uh, talk of your own historical work. I, I mentioned in the, uh, a moment ago you currently practice law for a living. Is that correct? I do. I practice law full-time, just like you did once upon a time. Uh, I did, but I went straight. Um, I, I gave up my life of law to uh, to study history. You're still doing that. Uh, one question I have for you is, how do you find time to do history? Well, it's uh, it's been a struggle over the years, but at the same time, I'm I'm lucky to have an extremely understanding wife, number one, who was in school herself. So I had a lot, and then also had a job that required her to work a lot of evenings. So I found myself with a lot of available evenings and not much else to do except let dogs out and it was a good opportunity for me to be productive and I'm not one to be good at sitting around and just simply watching TV and not doing anything anyway so for me to sit in a laptop with a laptop in my lap surrounded by piles of, of resource material and, and writing is a very common sight and uh, Susan's used to it and she's extremely tolerant of it well, that that is uh, certainly a, a good way to, to use one's time. And as you and I discussed the other day, there are actually quite a few lawyers who have turned to writing about the Civil War. Uh, Alan Nolan comes to mind as one who's done that. Alan's one. Uh, there's Frank Williams, who's the Chief Justice of the Su uh, Supreme Court of Rhode Island, who is one of the leading Lincoln scholars in the country. There's Kent Masterson Brown, who just recently published a, a really nice piece of work on the retreat from Gettysburg. Uh, of course, one of the most respected people working in this field is Gordon Ray, and Gordon is a practicing attorney who not only practices law full-time, but commutes back and forth between Charleston, South Carolina, and the Virgin Islands to do it. Now, that's, that's a full-time occupation. It certainly is. And uh, also, there's you know, some of you who are cavalry buffs who may be acquainted with the work of uh, my friend Marshall Krolick of Chicago, who's a, a partner in a downtown Chicago law firm and has done some pretty good work on the 8th Illinois Cavalry over the years. That's right. So I guess there, there's a fair number of us out there. How did there you get, get your interest, what started your interest in history in general or the Civil War in particular? Well, I'm Philadelphia born. 
So you can't grow up in eastern Pennsylvania like I did and uh, not have very early exposure to history and not have very ex early exposure to the importance of understanding history. And, you know, having grown up in that environment, it's also close enough that it's a very common thing where I grew up to take children to Gettysburg at a young age. And in my case, it was a third-grade class trip, and I've been hooked ever since. I guess that's probably happened to a lot of us, some early visits. Uh, I can recall visiting Antietam when I think I was 10, and it uh, it set the hook that, that uh, never got away. Well, in my case, that's certainly the way it worked. Now, within that, uh, much of your writing has been about the cavalry of the Civil War, particularly the Union cavalry. Did that interest start early on, or is that something you developed? Well, it started early on, but it also developed. I mean, I have... I mentioned that first trip to Gettysburg in the third grade. I have three particular vivid memories of that trip. One of them, of course, is the rocks at Devil's Den, which I think every kid remembers. Every kid does. But the other two things that I specifically remember about that trip were the story of John Buford's troopers and their stand on July 1st and the death of John Reynolds. And those are the three things that I specifically remember from that first trip. So that got you... Uh interested then in Buford's cavalry, the, the units that, that scout, that guard the flanks of the Army of the Potomac, and that are, are the first to encounter uh, Heath's infantry on July 1st. Correct. And what? then as I, as I got older, I became, I, I started to increase my, my interest in cavalry operations through a lot of reasons. I'm a graduate of Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and Dickinson was founded by Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was, of course, one of the signers of the, the Declaration of Independence. And as I got interested in the, in the Rush family, I discovered that one of Dr. Rush's grandsons commanded a Union Cavalry Regiment of the Civil War, which was called the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry, which was also known as Rush's Lancers. And there happened to be a company of the Lancers raised in my hometown of Reading, Pennsylvania. And... Um, I was aware of that, so I started doing a little digging, and I started finding out more and more about this unit, and I started finding out more and more about the Army of the Potomac's Cavalry Corps, and my interest just sort of took off from there. Now, I've heard of Russia's Lancers. I've read about them for years. I keep coming across mentions of them. And, of course, in the 19th century, the Lance was quite a useful cavalry weapon for Napoleon's cavalry uh, 50 years earlier. Did Russia's Lancers ever employ those weapons in combat? They did. T tell me about that. Um, how this all came to pass was that Colonel Rush and George McClellan uh, were West Point classmates. and Colonel Rush was a member of that legendary West Point class of 1846 that included Stonewall Jackson and A.P. Hill and McClellan and uh, numerous other luminaries. Um, they were also fellow Philadelphians, and they, so they, they'd known each other from a very young age. And Colonel Rush had wanted to be appointed Brigadier General and placed in command of all of Pennsylvania's artillery at the beginning of the war because that was his Mexican War experience was as an artillerist, and uh, that request was denied. So instead, Governor Curtin threw him a bone by offering him the colonelcy of a cavalry regiment and gave him sort of unprecedented latitude in that Rush was given the ability to select his own officers instead of having them elected from the ranks. And uh, so this was sort of an elite unit based on some, on some of the individuals who made up the officer corps. And in November of 1861, George McClellan 
went to his old friend Richard Rush and said, how would you like to arm your regiment as Lancers? And Rush said, certainly. And within a matter of about 60 days, they were all armed with nine-foot-long lances tipped with 11-inch three-pointed blades on one end and a ferrule on the other. And, uh, of course, they had to learn how to use these cumbersome weapons. But once they did, I have been able to document three different lance charges that they, the regiment made uh, during the course of the war, uh, in particular against infantry, one of which was joining the charge, elements of them joined the charge of the 5th U.S. at Gaines Mill during the seven days in 1862 on the peninsula. So this was not just a parade ground weapon. They really did uh, take them into battle. They did. Uh, the first lance charge that I found was one that was made at the Battle of Hanover Courthouse in May of 1862, when a squadron, meaning two companies of the 6th Pennsylvania, made a lance charge against elements of the 18th North Carolina Infantry and ended up getting most of those men to surrender because they were afraid of being run down with these lances. Um, same time, though, the lances were something of a novelty item, and they were often referred to as, as being turkey drivers. And, <laughs> and uh, pig stickers and things like that by, by the infantrymen who thought they were rather comical dandies. But um, like I say, I was able to document three different lance charges against infantry. There may have been several others in, in cavalry skirmishes, but uh, by May of 1863, the decision was made at, uh, at War Department headquarters to take the lances away and, and arm these men with the more traditional cavalry weapons, um, carbine, pistol, saber. Although, interestingly enough, um, Quartermaster General Montgomery Meggs was very much opposed to the idea and advocated vigorously that, that they retain this unit as a, as a lance regiment, but Meggs lost. Huh. Well, Meggs, <clears throat> uh, no, I'm thinking not of Meggs, but of Ripley, the, the ordinance chief who won some important battles like not using repeating weapons or breech-loading weapons early on, uh, <clears throat> which if that had gone differently might have certainly shortened the war by a year. But let me ask about the, the Union Cavalry then. You mentioned at Gaines Mill there's a mounted charge. There are some charges on the peninsula. But early in the war, it seems like the Union Cavalry gets the, the short end of the lance uh, repeatedly. Well, there, and there's lots of reasons for that, and they're, they're really fairly complicated. I can try and explore some of them with you. Please. Um, first and foremost, Winfield Scott himself was vigorously opposed to the idea of raising volunteer cavalry regiments. The conventional wisdom was that it would take three to five years to train these units to make them combat effective, and nobody expected the war to last that long. Mix in the fact that it typically cost up to $300,000 to mount and equip the cavalry regiment. Plus you have, instead of having just men to feed, now you have men and horses to feed. The cost factor was quite scary. So the idea was originally, well, we're not going to raise volunteer units. We'll stick with the regular cavalry that was assigned to the United States Army. But it quickly became obvious that force was inadequate. And there were also a lot of people advocating for volunteer cavalry regiments, not the least of which was uh, Carl Schurz, who, of course, went on to be the Secretary of the Interior in the years after the war. Schurz himself raised the first volunteer cavalry regiment, which was made up of about half New Yorkers and half men from Philadelphia. It was 
called the First New York Lincoln Cavalry. And um, before Winfield Scott knew what was going on, there had been over 80 regiments of volunteer cavalry formed. So it took a long time to mount these men. Uh, as an example, the men in the 9th New York Cavalry, in many instances, were not mounted until well into 1862. So it, it took time to mount them. It took time for these men to learn tactics. Uh, many of the, the men from the north who were city boys were not accom- accustomed to being horsemen and taking care of horses and doing all the things that are associated with caring for, for animals like that. They had to learn that. And then you mix in the fact that the southerners brought their own horses, so they brought animals they were accustomed to. Uh, many of them... Many of the, the higher-ranking officers of the Confederacy were West Pointers who were, were former cavalry officers, and that included the likes of Robert E. Lee, I might add. And um, there was a doctrinal decision that was made among the high command on the Confederacy side that given the competence of the officers who were serving in this mounted branch to use it effectively, and, of course, Jeb Stewart comes to the forefront quickly. On the other hand... Uh, George McClellan was not one to make good use of his cavalry, and for the first year and a half or so of the war, instead of serving together as cohesive units, cavalry regiments were broken up and scattered. A regiment was assigned to a brigade of infantry, and they were primarily used as orderlies and messengers instead of doing the things that cavalry is supposed to do, which is scouting, screening, and reconnaissance and being the eyes and ears of the Army. And it took really until a combined arms expedition that was commanded by uh, Governor K. Warren that was sent out by Fitzjohn Porter in the Fifth Corps in the direction of Hanover Courthouse during the Peninsula Campaign uh, for the cavalry to demonstrate that it could, in fact, be a useful weapon in this war. And McClellan began to sort of change his ideas a little bit, but really to give credit where it's due, and it's, it's interesting that, that the, the one general who commanded an army in the East who catches the most grief and who is most subject to criticism is John Pope. And there's one thing that it's certainly easy to criticize John Pope for an awful lot of things, but one thing that you cannot criticize Pope for, Pope was a visionary, and I think of all the army commanders the Union had, Pope probably best understood the role that cavalry could play, and it was John Pope who actually first brigaded volunteer cavalry units in, in the East during what became the Second Manassas Campaign, and they did very well indeed. McClellan then took the idea and ran with it, but it wasn't until the spring of 1863 when Hooker took command of the Army of the Potomac and implemented a plan to take all these miscellaneous cavalry regiments and form them into a cohesive corps and give them a corps commander with a real command structure was when the tide really began to turn. And this was in February of 63. So up to that point, we have the Confederate cavalry uh, using its advantages of the rural backgrounds of its men, the ownership of their own horses, the doctrine that uh, coalesces them into larger units, uh, the experience of the West Point officers. We have a, a whole raft of reasons why they are superior. But we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll see how, by 1863, the Union cavalry uh, begins to turn the tide as we discuss uh, Civil War cavalry with historian Eric Wittenberg on Civil War Talk Radio. 